right, well, I'm here at Johnstown Airport in Pennsylvania, ready to go to the Ditko Convention at the Bottle Works exhibit. No cab anywhere, small gate, but I did find one Uber in town that will come and pick me up. Let's go. So it looks like the Bottle Works Museum is the bright yellow building here on 3rd Avenue in Johnstown. That's where the actual exhibit is. And around the corner in this brown building is the convention center taking place in Aces Banquet Hall. All right, finally here at the Ditko convention, there's Mark Ditko in the distance. Just finished watching him speak in a Ditko panel. There's my friend Dave Armstrong. Also, there's Javier Hernandez and also Arlen Schumer and Carl Potts. Let's chat with everybody. Well, we're here at the Ditko convention here in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. This is my friend Mark Ditko. How are you doing, Mark? Uh, I'm doing good. Exciting. <laughs> Yeah. This is an exciting time. This is actually kind of the first time that I've seen that there's been such a celebration on Ditko as an artist, writer, and storyteller. What's some of the take-home points that people should know about your uncle Steve Ditko and what he's contributed to the world of comics and storytelling in general? Oh, we have to do a, a, a nine-hour interview. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? It, it, I think a lot of people know who know Steve Ditko and know his career, you know, Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, all that stuff. I mean, 70 years of comics. And what this really is focused on is him as a person, that he had an alternate life, you know, that he was, a, 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 I'll say, a regular guy, but with a strong philosophy. So this is more trying to emphasize kind of the personal take on who he was and dispel some of the rumors and get more people to understand who he was, even right out of his hometown in Johnstown. And uh, something I noticed coming to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, you really get a sense that it's a small town and that it gives you a sense of he was a small town guy that was living in a big city and pioneering comic storytelling. Does that fit into how we should try to interpret him as a person? Oh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, and that's really kind of the bigger point is he wasn't reclusive. He wasn't, you know, all the other adjectives. Uh, he was just from a small town. And had a passion for a career path. He wanted to do comics. He always wanted to do comics. That's what he did. He was committed. He went to the big city. Probably helped when he went over to Germany for a couple of years that he was able to kind of break out of the sort of the Johnstown small town vibe box. But, you know, he, he just, he was committed. He had a passion for what he wanted to do and he went and did it. And he was a professional at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, I think, something that he expected also of the people, of his employers, that he expected them to be as professional as he was. And I think that's one of the reasons why he was very selective with where he was working and what stories he was working on. What is your personal favorite era of Ditko? There is 50s Charlton, there's early 60s Marvel, later 60s Warren, um, the DC, then you have the kind of the Mr. A period that followed after that he worked on for a long time. What's your favorite? I'm a big Ditko fan. So um, I got to say, if I had to isolate some, I, I don't know that I have a favorite. I love his Warren work. Mm -hmm. You know, that to me is just so unique. I love, love, love Mr. A. But I was going through the comics that he sent me from the 50s, the early Marvel stuff, the five pagers, mind boggling mm -hmm. stuff, the volume and the impact, the energy that's in there. I love that stuff. To me, there's a couple eras. This is early Marvel stuff, you know, pre-superhero stuff, his Warren stuff, and I love Mr. A. Mm -hmm. That's cool. And so now, how did this uh, Ditko convention get together? I'm surprised 
there haven't been more of these already. Was it a difficult process? Matt Lamb, the creative director here at Bottle Works, was always a Ditko fan. He has his own collection, you know, memorabilia and stuff in comics. There's a, a very strong comic community here. And when he found out, which he didn't know originally, that Steve Ditko was from here, it was a no-brainer. He was immediately interested, you know, uh, this is what they do down here at Bottle Works. And then once I got him in touch with, I was obviously interested. Once I got him in touch with my brother, Pat, and my dad, they were on board. And then it was just a matter of logistics. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad you're doing it. I'm really glad to be here. And uh, thank you for showing us around this convention center a little bit. You're also going to show us the exhibit a little bit later. So we're all very excited about that. Uh, looking forward to it. There's a good exhibit over there. I mean, a lot of people have kind of come in from out of state. Uh, it's been a nice, you know, influx of people, you know, almost every day. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the more the merrier, you know. Further adventures here at the Ditko Convention in Johnstown, PA. This is uh, a former uh, executive editor over at Marvel Comics, Carl Potts. Carl, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. So uh, we interviewed Carl at the Comic Book Historians podcast. Um, it's fun to actually talk to him in person as well. Carl, what brings you to the Steve Ditko Convention? What was some of your uh, most uh, precious memories of being exposed to Steve Ditko's work? Well, my first exposure was an ad, a house ad for Spider-Man. It was in Sart one of the early issues of Sergeant Fury, which were my first uh, Marvel books. And uh, I got turned on to the rest of the Marvel line through those. And the Ditko stuff, just totally different, unique way of having the figures bounce around the page. And for Spider-Man's poses and the way he did things, it's like if there's a human that could do this, that is how they would have to look. I love the way he did anatomy. I learned my basic initial anatomy lessons from him. When I was in high school, my, I was a junior, my high school art teacher asked me where I learned anatomy. I said, Steve Ditko. Mm. Uh, and um, it just, it, it always stuck with me. That, you know, perhaps my all-time favorite issue of a Marvel comic is the second Spidey annual Doctor Strange because Doctor Strange is also one of my all-time favorite characters. And it still baffles me sometimes that both those very different characters sprang from the same mind. Yeah, they're very different because one's kind of urban and the other one's in a mystical, other-dimensional plane. Yeah, and for someone especially who later in life, um, you know, started trying to concentrate more on, you know, real-life kind of stuff instead of the more fantastical elements unless it was a horror story um it just seemed so unusual for him to come up with a, a mystical character for someone who was like based on science and fact and all this stuff mm -hmm. very interesting right because the mindless ones and dormammu's zone that he lived in in that other dimension none of that feels very objectivist to me so i agree there was something extra going on with uh, ditko that was really creative and his faces and hands were like really unique he, his hands actually often did that i was just talking to somebody about when he'd visit at the office he'd often have uh his fedora in one hand and the uh his kind of tan raincoat on the other and if he's standing in the door He'd put the hand holding the fedora on his hip with it, the fingers splayed like this. <laughs> and those were his hand gestures. Mm -hmm. uh, he was exaggerating a bit, but not as much as people think. What are some interesting interactions that you or while you were at Marvel that people had with Steve Ditko? One time I asked him to pencil a story for our self-parody magazine, What the... 
And he said, well, I don't believe in parroting heroes, only villains. So if you have a story that does that, I'd be happy to do it. So I asked Mark Grunewald, and he wrote a, uh, a parody of Secret Wars villains. And Steve penciled it, and John Severin inked it. came out great. His convictions did affect his decisions on what he did or didn't do. Just an interesting guy. He'd come by the office once in a while and just stop in, pop his head in and start talking. Often he'd go on some philosophical or sociopolitical thing. And when he got going, it was hard to interject anything. Uh, and I felt kind of weird if I did. So he could go on for a long time. Uh, but he wasn't shy with his opinions. Uh, but he didn't just assume that everybody was going to take everything he said as, uh, you know, the be-all and end-all on a particular subject. Uh, just very fascinating guy. I just, uh, when I was a kid and I first saw his work, I couldn't have imagined actually working with him on, on anything or meeting him or, or whatever. And I hear all these stories about people who never got a chance to, to meet him, and I feel very lucky for having been able to do so. And I'm one of the few people on the planet that can say that they actually met Ditko at a party because he was not known for attending parties. Uh, but uh, Neil Adams had a first Friday party, and he invited Ditko and got him to show up. And uh, Jim Starlin uh, kind of dragged me over there and introduced me to him because Starlin had known him for a long time. That, that was my first meeting with Ditko. Wow, that's awesome. Do you remember what he was wearing and what his body language was like at this party? Well, when I entered the living room, he was sitting on the sofa, Neil's sofa, and nobody else would come near because I think they were all in awe and they weren't sure what to say. And uh, I felt bad, but I, I didn't have the nerve to go up there. And Starlin drags me over and goes, I'll introduce you. Because Starlin had known Ditko for years. Uh, when Starlin was still a fan, he'd come to New York. And those, he was one of those people that call up Ditko out of the blue and say, hey, can I come over? And Ditko said, sure. Uh, so they know each other, but so he takes me over to Ditko and goes, Steve, this is Carl. He thinks you're God. Then, then Starlin pivoted and walked away, <laughs> left me sitting there sweating. I didn't know what, how the hell to react to that. Uh, but we ended up uh, talking a bit and uh, got to know each other enough so that when Steve did, when I was on staff at Marvel years later and Steve came up to the offices, he would often make the rounds of the editorial offices and, uh, speak to the editors he had an acquaintance with and, Often that would be Tom DeFalco, Ralph Macchio. He spent a lot of time talking to Ralph Macchio and the Senti, Al Milgram. Al had worked with him both at Marvel and DC. So, uh, you know, but he would never, we'd always offer, you know, take him out for lunch on the company and all that. And uh, for whatever reason, he, he always declined. I don't know why, but uh, it's too bad. I would love to, you know, been able to take him out to, to a nice lunch and, uh, and chat over whatever it was he wanted to eat. Yeah, That's awesome. Well, really appreciate you sharing that story with us. Um, so when you saw him at the party, it was while you were at Continuity Studios? Yes, this would have had to have been around 1977, perhaps, around there. Yeah, and then Al Milgram um, went over to Marvel like after that. Um, DC implosion, right, and of '78. Yeah. yeah, he was an editor at DC along with Larry Hama for a year, and then the implosion hit, and then they both ended up at Marvel. And I got my editorial job at Marvel because uh, Milgram decided to leave 
editing and go uh, on contract to be a staff creator. And uh, so I got a call out of the blue asking to, to replace him. And uh, I wasn't I wasn't counting on being an editor, so uh, it was a big career change and shift for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you had a great career over at Marvel as an editor. You've also been an artist as well as writer for Marvel. What are you working on these days, and how can people reach your current projects? One of the things I'm working on is a huge graphic novel based on uh, some World War II experiences my uh, mother's side of the family had during the war in the Philippines. And it's going to be published by the Naval Institute Press. And uh, the artwork, I wrote it, and I did some of the layouts, but most of the layouts have been done by Bill Reinhold, and he's doing the finished art all in ink wash. And then we shoot it, and it gets turned into sepia tone. So it has that kind of World War II faded newsreel look to it. And the work looks gorgeous. I just kind of only half-jokingly tell Bill, I hope it comes out in my lifetime. I would wish it was coming out faster, but it looks gorgeous. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, uh, I look forward to reading that, and I definitely will. Carl, thanks so much for chatting with me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Well, we're here at the Ditko Convention in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. I'm here with Javier Hernandez. Javier, how are you? Very good. Having a great time. My first time in Johnstown. Love to be here. Well, Javier, this is a really one-of-a-kind situation where the Ditko families put together this great celebration. We've gotten to know a lot more about Johnstown, Pennsylvania. So tell me, what is it about Steve Ditko that you love so much? You just did a big panel on him just now. Well, I mean, as a kid, I just fell in love with the work. Um, basically, a Spider-Man story. Spider-Man, Human Torch versus the Beetle. Look that up, everybody. And ever since then, every time you do new work, I would just pick it up, fall in love with it. Then, you know, this is probably at one point, I think I saw him do... The Creeper, once again, at D.C. in the 70s, and then in the 80s, he took over Machine Man from Kirby. I just loved his cartoony figure work, the rubbery uh, expressiveness of the characters, and then also you start reading about him, how he's this kind of private guy, and it's like doing his own thing. That stuck a lot to me, which kind of explained why I got into self-publishing later. So loved him as always as an artist, but also as an individualistic um, creative person. And then you also have recommended people to read his recent stuff, like more like over the past 12 years, shortly before his death in 2018. What is it that people who aren't reading that stuff, what are they missing out on? Yeah, I kind of went on a little rant up there. I go, yeah, let's not just talk about, oh, the old dick, oh, the old dick. Well, yeah, he's done work for 60 years, but he's done like maybe a 1,000 pages of work in the last 10, 12 years. Um, what does I love about it? Well, some of the, I love that he was just doing it, like at his age. That's inspiring. He was in his 80s at the time doing that. And I, and he's still doing the stories he's always loved, like adventure, philosophical. And he draws the styles a little different, but you can still see the old Ditko in it. Um, but really just I wanted to support the work. And it was for me, it was like I'm getting a new Steve Ditko book every whatever, four, six, eight months, like like clockwork for like 10 years. That's amazing. Stay with us. We'll be right back. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities 
under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War. Who was this enemy of the United States? He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. So, Javier, we're learning a lot about Ditko and his family and even his ethnicity. It's a very particular type of Eastern European. Have you come into contact with any more information on that? There was this couple. They're from like this local Russian community ethnic group. Yeah. And it's not necessarily Russian R-U-S-S-I-A-N, right? It's Rusin, like R-U-S-Y-N. It's like a Slavic type of thing. All right. What were they saying? We're just talking about obviously Ditko and his art and, you know, what it meant to me and, you know, what their connection was. And they talked about the cultural background of the family, the Ditko family there in Johnstown. And then uh, the lady's brother was telling me that that the the Ditko family, their religious background is Byzantine Catholic, which I think Mark Ditko shared on uh, when you interviewed him a few episodes ago. That's right. He did share that Byzantine Catholic. Yes. Or Eastern Catholic. Some people call it. The brother was telling me in, in the studying of what they call the icons, you know, which is the, the saints, like the paintings of the saints. Looking at them, he was noticing, you know, there's always particular very distinct hand gestures of the saints. They'll have their hand raised up and they may have two fingers pointing up or they may have a combination of different fingers in different directions. And he actually called up on his cell phone. He showed me this one particular image of this one particular saint. And he's like, check out the hands. And I looked at the one hand. He had the, uh, what we, we would call the Doctor Strange Spider-Man web shooter hand with the two middle fingers folded in and the two outer fingers pointing out and the thumb kind of pointing out. But he was saying, like, we all know Ditko was an objectivist in his adult years, turned away from all religious thoughts, but he grew up, like anybody else grew up in a particular religion. It was around him and such. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that you'd only really get if you came here and talked to the locals and found out something like that. And actually, the position of that hand gesture of that saint, it looks like a Charlton picture of this sorcerer escaping a prison cell. And his position, even the way he's standing, looks like that picture. So that's cool. Thank you so much for sharing that, Javier. Sure, absolutely. And then you yourself are also a comic creator. You have your comic character, El Muerto, who also has its own movie as well. Tell us about that character. Yeah, El Muerto uh, debuted in 1998, uh, means the dead one. It's a comic book uh, kind of based a little bit on Aztec mythology and Day of the Dead folklore. So a young man, Diego de la Muerte, on his 21st birthday, which is Day of the Dead, gets killed in a car accident. He ends up waking up in the land of the dead, the Aztec land of the dead, and he gets resurrected as this Aztec zombie. Um, and then in 2005, I got approached by some filmmakers. They wanted to make a movie out of it, made a deal eventually in 2007, we released our film, yeah. starring Wilmer Valderrama. I was associate producer, and I had a little cameo in there. That's awesome. That's like every comic creator's dream. So how can people um, find more of your content, as well as your Ditko zine that you've created? Um, I would recommend going to my Instagram page. It's Javier Los Comics at Instagram, I guess, or Instagram at Javier Los Comics. Um, and you can go to Havzilla.com, J-A-V-Z-I-L-L-A. That's like my blog. I got all the links for everything on there. My web store, my Amazon, everything. All right. Well, thanks, Javier. Nice chatting. Thank you, Alex. Well, uh, I'm Alex Grand here at the Ditko Convention in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. This is my friend Arlen Schumer. Arlen, how are you? Hey, man. Great to be here. Hi, Alex. I haven't seen you in so long. (laughs) Great to see you. So, um, Arlen, you just got done with a, a big panel on Steve Ditko. What is it about Steve Ditko that you feel that people who don't know him are missing out on or that people who know him a little bit don't know enough of? 
Wow, that's a loaded question. You know, I set up on the panel that we've got to start, we've got to stop treating these great comic book artists like Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby as, quote, just great comic book artists. They're great American artists who happen to work in the comic book field and in Ditko's case, happened to create two of the greatest 20th century mythological characters, Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, that are part of our popular national culture now in the 21st century. So that is the way also being here in Johnstown, which is still only known mostly by the flood, a very negative, obviously, occasion that has marked this city with a bit of a black mark. Mm. I mean, the irony is I went to eat breakfast at the Flood City Cafe. And I'm thinking to myself, where is the Ditko Diner? Right. You see? Yeah, that's and, a good point. The Ditko Diner. Okay. Uh, copyright Arlen Schumer 2021, by the way. Ditko Diner. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. No, but what I'm saying is the way Johnstone itself gets out of this hundred-year kind of curse of the Flood is by promoting itself as the hometown of Steve Ditko, the great American artist who created Spider-Man and Doctor Strange at Al. And then when you drive around this city, you see paintings of Ditko's characters on the giant abandoned mill walls and the rooftops that, in a sense, look depressed. But that's how you bring back a community. You know, there's an incline here like there is in Pittsburgh. And I'm imagining a statue of Spider-Man climbing up the incline. Mm. And that's how you change. Instead of Johnstown is the home of the flood, it's Johnstown, the home of Steve Ditko. Arlen Schumer, city planner, ladies and gentlemen, amongst many other skills. I am ready to serve. So now, Arlen, of the different stages of Ditko's career, you have the 50s Charlton, you got 60s, early early 60s Marvel, you have the... Superhero Marvel... You have then the later DC Warren. Right? right. Then you have kind of his Mr. A period, and then after the more modern stuff he All did. His independent, you know, Ayn Rand objectivist influenced political track type comics. But he always would return to Mr. A. He would pop in and do something for Marvel or something for DC out of nowhere. I remember in 1977, the word got around. Now, the comic book, you know, fan zines and where you learned about upcoming comics there were like three things but when the buzz got around that ditko was drawing batman in a one-shot issue of man bat we didn't care about man bat we cared that ditko was drawing batman and you know he drew him very uniquely where he kind of shadowed his entire face which is something that guys like frank miller and everybody has done since but I think Ditko might have been one of the first to really do that. So little things like that. Right. Um, yeah, he had an atmospheric, cinematic approach to a lot of his comics, especially his Charlton stuff. It seems like he added that chiaroscuro effect to a character like Batman, and that was almost long overdue. Like, that probably should have happened sooner. And there might have been some cases, but you're right. The Ditko art of that issue is really like the only reason why to even look at that issue Uh, really everything else about it doesn't really matter it's a ditko stuff that mattered for many of us i think gil kane once said the only reason for being interested in comics is the art which you know every writer not their favorite quote but what i'll say is on the one hand 
comics have always been about the great art. I mean, I became an artist like a whole generation did because of the art in those Silver Age comics that I grew up with. But on the other hand, Shakespeare said the play's the thing. So in the end, great art cannot save a bad story. But guess what? A great story can save bad art. My favorite single Batman story is drawn by one of my least favorite superhero artists. You know what I mean? By the way, Ross Andrew. And I, I weep for the generation that came of age with Ross Andrew as their <laughs> Spider-Man. But listen, I love Ross Andrew on Metal Men. So this is my point. My favorite Batman story, and I'm a guy that loves the Neil Adams Batman. But my, when I think of this, the story that most affected me, it was drawn by Ross Andrew. So think about that. A guy that I thought had cardboard, awkward figures drew the story that most emotionally affected me. By the way, Brave and Bold, number 90, Adam Strange meets Batman. Now, you would think, and you know, written by Bob Haney, who everybody, oh, you know, Bob Haney's too goofy. So imagine a writer with, you know, the, the reputation of being goofy and an artist with the reputation for drawing cardboard stiff figures somehow gave me my favorite Batman story that brought a tear to my eye as a 12-year-old. And such is the power of comics. It's the yes. power of, of story, art, to make a, an impact on a generation of kids. Arlen, of course, was affected by that, and that's led to his comic book historian career. Arlen, how can people um, buy your book on the Silver Age of comic book art? Where is it available at? So, as I lift up my book here for the camera, the Silver Age of comic book art, it's available through my website, arlenschumer.com, and it'll bring you to the you know, page for the book. And by getting it through me, you'll pay, in a sense, retail plus postage, but I will sign it and sketch in it for you to make it personalized. And by the way, people buy the book always on places like Amazon because, of course, it's cheaper. But, you know, the artist doesn't make, the author doesn't make any money from Amazon. We're all on Amazon just for the exposure. But if you want to help out your local neighborhood freelance artist, you buy the book from the artist. So ArlenSchumer.com or the Silver Age of will get you there. All right. Well, thanks for chatting with us, Arlen. Thanks for having me on, Alex, and it's great to see you. So I finally made it over to the Bottleworks Museum Exhibit Hall, where they demonstrated a lot of fun Ditko original art, original Xeroxes, some never-before-seen Ditko family paraphernalia, and Ditko comics. I ran into my good friend David Armstrong there, who showed me around. And we had ourselves a fun chat right before the grand finale with museum exhibit host Mark Ditko. All right, so I'm here at the Ditko convention. This is my very good friend David Armstrong, former senior vice president at MGM and comic fan all his life. Dave, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing good. So thanks so much for uh, kind of showing me around here. You've been to a lot of conventions your whole life. You've known a lot of the creators over the years. What's your impression of Steve Ditko? And what is it that you've enjoyed about Steve Ditko's art? Well, you know, I was always a big Spider-Man fan. And I've loved the stuff that I saw from the day I first saw it. Uh, and I picked it up off the stands. Um, what I didn't get a chance to see was his earlier Charlton stuff. So I was really amazed to see that as a collector over time. Um, I thought it was very atmospheric. I thought it set up his Doctor Strange stuff, and it was really great to see it here. But the stuff that I really enjoyed seeing are the family photographs, the wo early woodcuts that he did in school, which I thought are, you know, it's great to see 
the beginnings of a career um, in a in a in a field, and you know it's just like the five thousand hours rule. You get you someone has to spend a lot of time in, in order to get good, and you get to, you get to see the progression. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, it is. So of the different um, eras that Ditko's done, you have the um, the fifties Charlton, which you said was atmospheric. Of course, the early sixties Marvel the late 60s as far as DC, but also some of the Warren stuff, his Mr. A and some of the later stuff. What is your favorite to look at just to like go back and look at uh, look at it? Is it the Charlton stuff or would it be like the ink wash stuff he did with Warren? Absolutely, the wash stuff. The, the Warren stuff I think was probably the best work that he ever did. Um, it was really wonderful to look at in terms of the tone and how he used the wash. Um, it, it just, it was a great, medium for him in a black and white uh, uh, context. And you were also friends with Alex Toth, who also did some work for that. So uh, was it just their usage of shadow with that ink wash? What was it you think that stands out so well? Well, I think it's both the the layouts and the storytelling elements, certainly for Alex and certainly for Ditko, and I think for Carmen Infantino as well. All of them shined because they had spent their entire career up to that point honing their craft and it and it became very 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 focused in terms of what they produce it's if you look at the any of the stuff they did in the early warren books it's it just shines in terms of how storytelling and it's far more evocative than just a black and white line work and uh, you were also friends with uh, Dick Giordano. You've actually been to the Charlton factory back in the 60s. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Well, you know, I, I, it's funny because I ended up going through the Charlton office, so I saw the printing presses. You know, obviously they printed their own books. Um, they had their own distribution set up. So you could see all of the elements there and a couple of editorial offices, but I didn't see any of the work being done. Um, but I did visit... Dick Giordano shared an office, uh, a studio with uh, Rocco Mastroserio, and I stopped by their uh, their studio and got a chance to see everything that they were doing. You know, Rocco was a fair, was a, both a penciler and an inker, and Dick was did both pencils and inks, even though he was still edit, head of editorial. Um, but one of, the, one of the biggest treats for me was they had a spinner rack with a whole bunch of books on it, and I started going through it, and they said, take anything you want. Mm. And I got this, you know... A Thunder Number One and a couple of other books that, as a young collector, were pretty impressive at the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, so Dave actually knows pretty much everybody over the past like f- uh, five decades of comic fandom, and you actually uh, started in the Rocket uh, uh, Blast uh, Comic Collector magazine. What was the issue number that you first got into fandom? Uh, Rocket's Blast Twenty Five. Yeah. It was a um, it was a Hawkman cover. And uh, it was before they actually combined Rocket Blast with the comic collector. And so then when you were in the movie movie business, were you still kind of looking at comics at that time or were you pretty much more analyzing film? Well, I've gone through a whole, different periods of collecting. So I collected stuff up, in, up until the early 70s. And then I got very involved in the film business, um, both as a film editor and then later in the distribution side of the business. So, you know, as I've concentrated my efforts in my career, kind of the collecting side went down. But when we got bonused on Woman Under the Influence, I ended up taking (laughs) taking that money and buying a a whole run of detective comics from the Golden Age. So it kind of goes in cycles. Mm. And uh, and it has to do with, you know, 
when I have extra money to spend as to whether I can go out and buy and and, and fuel my collector side. Well, one more question. Uh, Jim Stranko did that Tower of Shadows comic in 1970, and it was a horror comics piece. But you were actually part of that production when it was actually filmed into a film sequence. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I met Steranko at a 65 convention. He was a dealer at the time before he started working for Harvey. And his number two guy was a guy named Ken Dixon, who ended up getting a, a scholarship at NYU Film School. And after that, he went to the American Film Institute. So the first project that he did was originally supposed to be a science fiction piece. Uh, we decided it was too expensive. And he called Steranko and said, could we use your Tower of Shadows story? And we turned it into Shadow House, which uh, was shot entirely at the American Film Institute. Uh, at the time, was at Greystone in Beverly Hills. Jim did the storyboards for the entire uh, piece. It's, it runs about 15 minutes long. Um, it's shot in black and white. John Carradine is one of the characters in the film. And if you watch the film, there's a portrait. And the portrait basically was a large-scale photograph. It's about five feet tall that Jim turned into a painting to make it look as though it was a painting. So he contributed a lot to that film. It was a pretty interesting experience. Yeah, that's a great convergence of film and comics. And and Dave, thanks so much uh, for this time. Um, you have great stories about comics and film. Wonderful. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks. All right. Well, we're here at the uh, Ditko Convention. This is the exhibit hall of the Ditko's works. Uh, Mark, tell us a little bit about what went into the setup. You've been here for two months, basically um, uh, showing people around that have come and uh, checked out this exhibit. Uh, yes, I came in in uh, July and uh, been here through August and it's September and I'm still here. So I've been running my business out of a room over there that uh, the bottom works graciously set up for me. Uh -huh. And uh, anytime anybody comes in, I'm just, you know, trying to add, add kind of uh, the personal flair uh, to, you know, this, this exhibit mm -hmm. where it's not just browse around and and, uh, you know, look at the artwork or look at the, you know, the exhibit pieces, whether they're personal or military or something. It's just, uh, I like to, I'm adding that little personal touch. I've been really amazed by some of the paraphernalia you have. You actually have Ditko comics that he owned himself. He owned his own comics. He actually had his old stuff, even though he's known to always look forward with his new art. He also had, as we were talking earlier, articles on Spider-Man. So there was some, some sentiment that he had toward his old older works, although he generally always looked forward. Was that one thing that was a surprise for you as you were unpacking a lot of that stuff? Well, yeah, I think, um, uh, you know, the have, seeing the Spider-Man articles that he saved, that was that was a little surprising to me that he did that. Um, and I guess, but as I thought about it more, I was like, oh, okay, sure, why not? I mean, he's... Uh, it, it is what it is. You know, A is A. The, a Spider-Man, there's an article comes out. Why not just have a copy of it? It's, yeah. it, he had a connection to it. So, you know, what's wrong with that? As far as the comics and stuff go, you know, and the, some of the artwork that we brought in, you know, he had his own file copies of stuff. So he was sending me those things. And some of the things that are here, he had sent me. Some of the things that are here, he had sent my dad. Um, so, you know, he had his own, you know, collection of things. And over times, and I guess as he was getting older, he just thought, well, it's, you know, time to kind of pass this on. But some of his comics that, that are here, uh, in fact, all of the comics that are here that I brought were his. I mean, he, he just referred to him as his file copies, you know, he just kept them for probably reference. It wasn't some emotional attachment necessarily. It was probably just reference copies. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and uh, also I'm amazed by some of the newspaper clippings of most likely to succeed, and he's at the drawing board. Um, he was at a trade school uh, doing commercial art, and some of the commercial art pieces he made, it's pretty amazing because you can see um, signs of what's to come in some of that work. How much of this here is from your family's personal collection versus how much of it was stuff that he had that you guys inherited? Well, I would say probably about 40% of it is are things that were, you know, more industry stuff, printed, uh, just printed out or framed or, or from someone else's collection. And then there's probably maybe 60% that was really from him, uh, and either given to me, which I then, which I brought or given to my dad, a lot of his military memorabilia, a lot of his, you know, personal photographs of him at home as a kid, um, or at holidays or something. My dad has all of that stuff. So, um, yeah, I would say about 60% of it is things that, that no one else has probably ever seen. Yeah. I've been actually really amazed because kind of jaw dropped because I thought I'd seen everything of his. But there's stuff here that um, I've never seen before. I didn't know it existed. Um, then also, as far as the way he applied himself, I know that your dad is an architect, you're an engineer, and he's very analytical and always working to self-improve. Is that the legacy of Steve Ditko? Is that part of the Ditko family ethic? Is it a gene um, as far as uh, the body of work he's done and the body of work that you all do in your own ways? Uh, that's a good question. Um, and the answer is probably not as complex, you know, as it might seem. Um, my dad is a, is a, a we're, we're okay. Everybody's an artist in their own way. And we just happened to do as a kids growing up, sort of the physical art like that, you know, graphic art illustration. But then eventually everybody, you know, it takes that passion and it's kind of channels it. And, and I wouldn't even say that art you know, is the, the underlying skill. It's just a commitment to something. I remember when I started drawing, I wasn't any good. And then I kept drawing and drawing and drawing. You know, my uncle, I'll tell you the same way when he started drawing, you know, high school or whatever, it wasn't really like he's doing Dr. Strange, you know, in the sixties. So like anything, you have to practice and you have to, you have to get to that level of professionalism. I think if there's, you know, and my uncle would never associate it with a, a Ditko gene. It's not in the DNA. It's an internal commitment to be a pro at whatever you do and follow your passion. And I think that combined together is what produces somebody who's really talented. They, they want to do it. It's their decision and they just commit. They're all in and they have the passion. That's what makes people good. Deep commitment and passion. That's a, that's a great legacy from Steve Ditko. Mark, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. And that's it. That's the convention. Learned a lot of cool, interesting things about comic book great Steve Ditko. Enjoyed seeing this part of Pennsylvania. A special thanks to the Ditko family for hosting this event. And for now, goodbye, Johnstown. Johnstown.